we've been many, many months in the book of Mark, and we've told you many, many times that the book of Mark is sort of summarized with two emphasis, knowing Jesus and knowing what it means to follow him. We've been saying these things over and over again. That's what, why Mark wrote this gospel. And so we've been each week trying to understand in more depth who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? Last week I pointed out how these two come down to a couple questions that we can ask ourselves. Do you understand and will you stand? Do you understand? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand what he's done for you? Do you understand what the implications are of who he is and what he's done for you? Do, un do you understand the grace of God in Christ in you? Do you understand what that means for who you are if you are in Christ? Do you understand? Second question, will you stand? Now that you know this, will you stand? Will you stand in the truth that you know now that you understand who he is and what he's done for you? Will you stand in that? Will you live in that? Will you stand up when the pressure is against you, against him, against what we know and believe to be true? Will you stand? Will you stand is a question that comes to the surface when we face real pressures in life, pressures that test our faith. In these challenging situations, decisions are critical and they can often be very difficult. We all face difficult decisions. In an article some time ago in the Huffington Post entitled, This is the Hardest Part About Making Difficult Decisions, that's the title of the article. This is the hardest part about making difficult decisions. Chad Brooks wrote this. The most difficult part of making decisions isn't figuring out the right answer. It's having the courage to actually act on that knowledge. In other words, most of life's most difficult decisions are not difficult because they're so complicated and require such complex special knowledge in order to know the right thing to do most of them are difficult because they require an unusual amount of courage and resolve to make them and to carry them out the point is not that it, there are not complex decisions that we have to make in life the point is that most of the really difficult decisions are difficult the difficulty lies in the requirement of courage and resolve needed to act on them. In the article, when researchers asked executives about their most difficult decisions, nine out of 10 did not identify decisions that were complex. Instead, they considered being willing to do the right thing to be the hardest part. Chad went on to write, they need fewer advisors, but what they need is just the opposite moral support to resolve in making the tough decisions. To avoid a temptation in Margaret Thatcher's vivid phrase to go wobbly. The article goes on to point out that most executives being interviewed came to realize that they had little help in this area and found that more often than not, they had to go it alone. What we're looking at together this afternoon in our text is about obtaining that kind of resolve, that inner strength, that kind of courage to act on what we know to be right. Our text today is about Jesus going to the Father in order to obtain that kind of resolve. We want to realize how significant this event that we're going to read about was for him, but for us all. And we want to learn from Jesus how you and I too can come to the Lord and gain the resolve that we need to do the Lord's will. In a statement, standing firm requires a deep resolve 
that we must get from the Lord in prayer. Standing firm requires a deep resolve that we must get from the Lord in prayer. Let's read our text together. This is Mark 14, verse 32. And when and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going there. See my betrayer. Is at hand. I'm going to break down the message today, three simple headings, the agony, the resolve, and the challenge. First, the agony. We're reading about a situation where Jesus experienced a unique kind of agony as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was hit hard with some real agony when an author is writing and begins to pile up vocabulary and pile up phrases kind of saying the same thing. You know something is really going on. Deeply distressed, troubled, sorrowful unto death, falling to the ground, leads us down into the agony of Jesus. These are words that describe an extremely acute emotion, a compound of bewilderment, fear, uncertainty, and anxiety. Nowhere else portrayed in such vivid terms as here. We might say, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Something hit Jesus hard. The, the, the grammar, the words, the vocabulary is not just saying troubled and distressed. It's, it, there's a sense of shock. There's a sense of amazement like this, this stunned him a bit. It, it caught him in a sense off guard, if you will. Wednesday night, we were helping the Owens move in. At some point, Tammy and I took our leave. We looked at the almost empty truck. There was just one piano left in the truck, which brought back a memory of another move because the Owens piano is a little petite, upright piano. It looked like nothing. It was not a problem. The girls could handle that one. But I remember a move about 20, 25 years ago, I think it was the Cunninghams. Now, Sam and Steve are not here. They were kids. We were helping move their parents. And here's, here's what I remember. A full-size upright piano. An apartment with a door, a front door that you opened up into a small stoop, maybe three by three, four by four, with then some stairs up to the left and a banister right in front of you. And the piano needed to be moved in to this apartment and put into the living room. Of course, we had half a dozen guys managing, handling this piano. And at some point, the piano had to tip up on its end and make its way up around and over the banister. So, of course, everybody has a hand on it. And the captain gives, okay, men, one, two, three, heave. And the upright piano goes upright. I want you to imagine you're the guy on the bottom end of the piano. 
And you know at that moment, it doesn't matter how many guys have politely have their hands on the side of the piano, you're the guy at the bottom now holding the entire weight of that piano. And in a moment, you, you feel it. And you realize in a flash what's happening. And you know something in your body is going to break quickly. You don't know what it's going to be. My back, my knees, my shoulder, my arms are going to fall off. Something is just going to go completely wrong. I will never be the same person after this move. I thought of that story as I was studying the terminology about Jesus falling to the ground, greatly distressed. And I think that's what was happening in a moment. A reality landed on his soul. And it shook him and stunned him. And the, and the weight of it, he, it brought him down off his feet and, and onto the ground. Like, the, it was too much weight in too short a time that landed on him. And he, tried, and he expressed to his disciples, guys, great sorrow. I feel like I'm going to die. So troubled. So difficult. Before Jesus experienced an actual death on the cross, he had a death-like encounter in his soul a few hours before in the garden. He was going through a process in the garden that was all the, the internal coming to terms with the reality of what was going to happen to him physically in a few hours. The hardest part of some decisions, not even in the actual doing, it's prior to that and the process of coming to the resolve in your own being, in your own soul, to really come to terms with all the implications of it and to have it land on you and feel the weight of it and come out of that with the resolve, I'm going to go through with this. Why was this so difficult for Jesus? Now, I don't mean to say that dying on the cross is an easy thing or, or a light thing by any means, but does it strike you a little bit strange that as we've been studying this, the demeanor of Jesus, he's been predicting his sufferings now several times, three times he's told his disciples, we've got to get to Jerusalem, and he's determined to get there. He's like, he's walking ahead of them, like they can barely keep up. He's determined, they can see he's determined to get to Jerusalem at a certain point in time, and he explains to them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. He has predicted that Peter is going to deny him three times. He has predicted that all the disciples are going to fall away. And all these things he's sort of rattling off and explaining to them. Does it strike you a little bit strange that all of a sudden he's now crushed by all these truths and realities? If you read about martyrs in the early church, no doubt you've heard stories about people facing death very bravely. And Jesus is an unusual person with unusual fortitude and, and strength. Is it really the death and the suffering that now has him falling on the ground, crushed and so distressed, experiencing so much agony? Actually, I think the reality of what's going, is, going on is a little bit different, and we can discern and understand what the agony of Jesus is actually all about by the words he used when he prayed in the garden. Three key words from his prayer. This hour, this cup, and Abba. His hour has come, and now he's approaching it. He realizes this is my hour, a reference to his highest purpose, his greatest act. He's on the verge of it. 
right now. It's about to take place. This is my time has come moment for him. This is why I came to the earth. It's all coming down to this next few hours. It was all about this, and I'm standing right on the threshold of my hour. The event that he was made for, that he came for, everything was, in a sense, preparation for this hour. And in his sorrow, he prays to the Father, if this cup could pass from him. Now, in the Bible, the, the word cup or the phrase the cup, is, a, is it's used figuratively that can be some way of containing the share of God's blessings or disasters that have been allotted to a man or to a nation. So it took some time this week to go through all the references in the Bible that use the cup. And there are different meanings and different ways of using it. Sometimes it is the cup of salvation or a cup of consolation. And to drink from that cup means that you're having the blessings of God poured into your life. Psalm 16.5 would be an example of that. There's other times when the cup, drinking the cup, is referring to the, the evilness of the culture all around us. So in the book of Revelation, oh, people, you have been drinking Babylon's cup of their idolatry. So we could say here in America, we, we could be caught drinking the cup of consumerism or self or entertainment that would be like a, a cup that we would be drinking, meaning we're taking in something of the sinful, godless culture around us. Most often, most often in the scriptures, the cup is an expression for God's judgment. And to drink the cup is to have the judgment of God poured into your life. Psalm 75 verse 8 would be an example of this, his hour, his cup, and Abba. We had it in one of the songs that we sang, Abba, Father. This is an intimate, affectionate term of a child to their father. I don't know what kind of name you grew up with using in your house for your dad, or if you're a dad, what your children call you, and uh, but... If I were to sort of mimic an interaction between a son and a father and the son says, yes, father, oh, father, okay, father, I will, father, everything about what I just said all reflects position, respect, and I'm not saying that it's bad. My point is simply, it's not intimate, is it? If you see a young child address their father as father, there might be lots of respect there, but it doesn't lead you to think of intimacy. Now, just like now, then, they had terms that were more endearing, more intimate. You might say daddy, you might say papa. And if you see a child run up to their dad and say, daddy, well, still could be very respectful. Nevertheless, now you have this intimacy there that you pick up in the terminology. And here, really the only time in Mark, Jesus is praying to his father. He says, Abba. A term like daddy or papa. A very intimate, close way of addressing we put these three terms, these three key words together into this context and you begin to see what's actually going on here. Jesus is approaching the moment, the time in his life where he is being called upon to take upon himself the judgment of God, causing him to encounter something he's never experienced before a separation of communion and fellowship with the Father. His daddy, intimate term. 
now he's, the, the realization has hit him like a ton of bricks. I'm stepping up and into a situation where I'm being called upon to drink a cup of God's wrath. The Father and the Son have coexisted throughout eternity in beautiful, loving, harmonious unity, friendship, fellowship. Has never experienced anything that would cause any kind of a break in that fellowship, in that unity, in that closeness, in that intimacy. But now the son is being sent by the father. And here's what's being laid out. Because of the sins of the world, there is a cup of God's wrath that must be drunk. And he sends the son. The cup has to be drunk in order to satisfy the justice of God, the holiness of God. What's dawning on Jesus in this moment is like, either I'm going to drink it, or the sinners are going to drink it. It's the only two options. And so now he's faced with the reality. I came here to drink this cup. But now the implications of drinking that cup have hit him and caused his heart to be greatly distressed, his soul full of sorrow. Back in Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is facing that reality in this moment. He is coming to terms in prayer about the reality of what he is about to face, do, and accomplish. It's crushing him on the inside. Was he thinking, ah, oh, those, those nails are really going to hurt? The whip, my back, the pain. It doesn't seem to indicate that's what was going on. You mean sin is going to be put upon me and I'm going to bear it? Meaning something that I'm going to bear is going to be displeasing to the father that I love? The father who loves me? You mean something is going to land on me that would cause me to be displeasing, cause some separation. The very thing that has separated humanity from God is going to fall on me, and now I'm going to be in that position. I, I have no category for being displeasing and separated from the Father. And the amount of sorrow that he is experiencing here should clue us in to the value and the joy of knowing the Father and being united to the Father and enjoying the Father. <laughs> That's the part you and I can't seem to comprehend very well. That's strange to us. Being a sinner and displeasing to God is normal for me. That's my normal life. I, I don't have a hard time comprehending that. Being perfectly united to God and in sweet, wonderful, united fellowship with him, that's a stretch from my mind. But that's all Jesus knew. And now he's facing something different. Jesus needed to process through this agony with God in order to obtain the resolve to carry it out. Hardest part of the decision is that time where you're working through that inner resolve. This is what's right, and I'm determined to carry it out. That was his agony. 
The second point is his resolve. Friends, there is someone that we can go to when we're in agony. Jesus had someone to call upon in his agony, his Abba, his Father. He could go. He goes to God, brings his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. As I said earlier, most executives in the article that I referred to interviewed came to realize they had little help in this area found out that more often than not they're on their own but friends someone cares for you you and i have someone to go to when you and i need to find strength and find resolve to do the lord's will we have a place to go we have someone to go to and jesus goes to the garden and he does some business some difficult business, some important business with God. And he pours out his heart to God. Jesus is honest. Jesus is candid. He lays out his sorrows to God. This is his Abba, who he can go to and speak his heart and lay out his troubles to him. Friends, could I ask you, how do you talk to God? Have you ever listened to yourself pray? Do you, do you put on some spiritual airs? Do you talk differently? Does your tone of voice, do you go King James when you pray? Does, so do you pronounce God differently when you pray? Are there, are there things that take place? Do you get kind of an airy, breathy tone about you when you're talking to God? How, how do you talk to God? Well, how you talk to God depends on how you perceive him and and jesus says abba dad dad can dad you need to know what's going on dad i feel like i'm gonna die inside i'm not sure what what this is this is more than i've ever carried i've got the whole piano and something's gonna break here i want you to know you, you don't need to put on any pretense with God. He already knows, okay? He already knows what's inside you. There's, there's no room for any pretense. pretense. And I, I want you to know that God can handle what's going on in your life and in your heart. He can handle it. The question is, you know, are, can we handle his will? Can we handle his promises? He can handle what's wrong with you and me and so go to god candidly honestly bear your soul to him thirdly jesus frames the situation with a divine perspective he's praying in terms of the spiritual realities my hour this is my hour i, I don't like what's happening to me this is very difficult this is your cup. Lord, this is your wrath. And your wrath is great because people's sins are great. Your holiness and your justice require that the cup must be drunk. And what's in front of me is the decision that either I will drink it or they will. If I drink it, your justice will be satisfied. And they can know your mercy. And both your glory will be known then throughout the earth. Oh Lord, I see this is the glorious end of all things. And only with that do my sorrows get put into perspective. Jesus is praying his way through with the Father, through his agony, laying out what is really going on here. What is this really about? Oh, this is about the salvation of the world. This is about God's glory going to the ends of the earth that sinners could be called just and made sons and daughters. And Jesus is praying through these spiritual realities and then he prioritizes God's will over his own. Friends, family, get into God's presence so that you can discern his will. Come into the light 
through prayer, study his word in order to understand the will of the Lord, realize the wisdom of God, and bring your soul to a place of submitting to it. Do you begin to see and realize how important it is for this process to take place in prayer? How, how dangerous it is when I'm just sort of left to myself to think, oh, just give me a pad of paper and a pen and let me start thinking and writing and unload what's going on in my heart and mind, but I've got no reference of wisdom, no reference of reality here. But when I go to the Lord in prayer and I'm in his presence, now I have other components to take into account. Now I've got some boundaries of reality and what is true and what is right and what is God doing. And Jesus prays this through to the point where his soul rests in, nevertheless, Lord, I'm in agony here. I don't know that I can bear this. Nevertheless, your will, not mine. And he prays three times. He prays three times. We talked about three last week. How the Bible uses three to establish something. When things happen three times, when they're said three times, it's like to just completely affirm and establish it's true. It's, been, it's taken place three times. Three times means it's resolved. So he prays three times. Paul writes in Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh. He said, I sought the Lord three times for him to take it away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He goes on to write, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see the distinction between the answer that he wanted, that he came to God with, and the answer that he got, and how his soul walked away completely resolved? What I'm saying is he didn't get what he asked for, but he got what God gave him, and that's what resolved his soul. Maybe you remember the story of Hannah. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, introducing the story of the prophet Samuel. Hannah was a woman that could have no children, and that was difficult and that was hard on her. But what made it all the worse was her husband had another wife who had lots of children but was less loved by her husband. And so she berated and ridiculed and made life miserable for Hannah who had no children. And Hannah goes into the temple. She gets into the presence of God and she prays. And she pours out her soul to God and God speaks to her. And at the end of that chapter, what is the phrase? I need to look it up. The beautiful phrase. 1 Samuel 1. It says, Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Poured out her soul to the Lord. The Lord met her. She wasn't pregnant. She got up. Her countenance was different. She stood up. The Lord had answered. Her heart was resolved. Paul did not have his thorn in the flesh removed. Yet the Lord spoke and the Lord met him. And so he got up and he was resolved. It was all figured out. I, I know who I am. I know where I need to go. I know what I need to do. I need to glory in my weakness because his grace is sufficient for me, and in my weakness, God's strength will be, be made known. It's like the old saints used to say, when you pray, you got to pray through. You got to pray all the way. Pray until the Lord meets you. 
So I hate to use this and create a formula. Well, just pray three times because I know we could just make a formula and, well, I could pray three times and I pray three times and then we walk up and walk away. No, it, it means something more. So don't get overly literal and realize what's being said. Pray until your soul is established with the thing. Pray three times, meaning pray until the Spirit of God resolves your heart. And you can get up, wash your face, and go on and move on with confidence, with the resolve. And now the resolve is settled in your heart. Praying three times means praying until the Lord answers. Not just the Lord answers, but the Lord answers and I receive that answer. And I get up with a sense of, okay, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. That's when you pray three times, even if it takes you 30 times. That's the resolve. Third point, the challenge. The challenge to all of us is stay awake. This has been the message. This is, I said this last week. It's an amazing thing about Jesus. He's in the, he's in the most difficult predicament. He's experiencing his deepest level of agony, but yet he does not stop making disciples. Think about what's going on here. He takes his disciples with him to pray. Sit here while I go pray. Peter, James, and John, come with me a little further. I'm going to go a little further. You stay here. So he goes, he prays, and he's like devastated with distress. He gets up, goes back, checks on the boys and see how they're doing. And he goes back and prays again. Devastated with distress crying out to God, pouring out a soul. And let me go back and check and see how the guys are doing. Guys, you need to stay awake. Doing business with God, make disciples. Do more business with God, go back and make more disciples. Do some more business with God, make some more disciples. Keep these guys in the loop. Keep helping them. Keep helping them grow, challenge them. Jesus prays three times. These guys fall asleep three times. Again, the faithfulness of Jesus contrasted with the failure of the disciples. Over and over, we've been seeing this. But he uses the situation to emphasize the previous warning that he said just a couple chapters before about staying awake. Guys, do you see? Do you see how easy it is to fall asleep? Do you see how easy it is to, to drift off? This Prayer night is one of the most important moments in the history of redemptive salvation in the universe. And you guys keep falling asleep right in the middle of it. Three times you've dozed off. Stay awake. Be watchful. This is Jesus' challenge. Like in chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus gave a little paragraph in there that all landed on this very point, stay awake. And the last line says, when he finished, he says, and what I say to you, I say to all. That's you and me. When I say to you guys, when I say to you 12, I want everybody to hear it. I want every Christian to hear this into the future for thousands of years. Stay awake. What does he mean by saying this? I know when I say stay awake, you, you have some idea of what I'm talking about. You, you, you get the concept, but maybe we can tease it out with just a little bit more detail. I had an interesting conversation with an Army recruiter recently. Not that I'm thinking about signing up. I think my sell-by date is past as far as the Army's concerned, so I don't think they'd take me... Uh, anymore but I had this wonderful conversation and, and learned a lot of things and I knew it would end up in this sermon I want to lay out a few things about what does it mean to stay awake first stay spiritually fit my conversation with my new friend in the army that the army makes a priority of making sure everybody stays physically fit 
time is set aside every day. You're up every early, early every morning, and you're going to go exercise, and you're going to work hard because you need to stay physically fit. Why? Because you don't know when you're going to be called upon to fight. You need to be in shape at all times, no exceptions. Now, if I were to tell you, I had this great conversation with an Army recruiter, and he said, yeah, I mean, the Army is just kind of slow and flabby and soft, and they sleep in, and they play games all day. They don't do much of anything. And, you know, if I told you that, you'd like, um, I'm not sure we're very secure here. We're, we're in rough shape here. What we need are soldiers who are fit at all times, ready to be called upon, ready to fight. It's what Jesus is telling his disciples. It's like, guys, I'm not sure you understand the kind of danger that's really out there. But here's how I'm going to try and convince you by telling you, stay awake, stay fit, stay spiritually fit. Okay, if all the members of our church wandered into church late, barely lifted their voice to sing, left early, sat through sermons, can't wait till this thing is over, thinking about dinner, never bring a Bible, never open a Bible, never open a Bible in between Sundays, never stop to pray, just maybe show up for church when it's convenient. If that characterized all the members of this church, we would not be ready for anything. Spiritually, we'd be sitting ducks. We couldn't last. Now, friends, just so you know, you cannot stay spiritually fit by a three to five minute congregational prayer on Sunday afternoon and a 40 minute sermon. That will not do it for you. That'd be like me going home and doing five push-ups and saying, that's it, I'm ready. That's it. That's not what it means to stay spiritually fit. We need daily bread. We need to be in God's word regularly. I, you know, I was thinking about this army thing, and you know, when you do something stupid or you do something wrong, they say, give me 50 push-ups. I thought, no, that could work. You mean you skip church for not a good reason? Oh, give me 50 chapters, okay? Before you, you, you read the book of Genesis before you show up here again, okay? That's what you've got to do. 50 chapters for you. I think this could work. Now, when the sergeant gives you 50 push-ups, you think, am I getting punished? And, of course, the sergeant just simply knows, actually, I'm not punishing you. I'm helping you. I'm making you more fit. I'm helping you be more ready. So what feels like a punishment is actually a gift in disguise to make you more ready. I think we should do it. Stay spiritually fit, friends. You, you need to. The, the days that we live in, the warnings that the Savior gave us, take heed. You don't understand the trouble that might be knocking at your door or hiding behind the next corner that you're about to walk around. You need to be spiritually fit in order to survive to the end, in order to have the resolve in your soul that you need to do the will of the Lord. Secondly, stay connected. We were made to succeed together. I learned some hard lessons through this whole COVID season. Being isolated and separated is devastating. It's bad for us. It's not a good thing. I know we went through times where it seemed necessary and we're feeling the effects of it spiritually. We need to be together. I found out that Army has a thing called battle buddies. 
one person designated to be your battle buddy that knows your business, all of it. In fact, if somebody goes off the rails, the sergeant goes to that person's battle buddy and say, where were you? Why didn't you know about this? What were you doing? That's your job. You're supposed to know when things are getting off. You are the one who's supposed to know what's going on. And as I'm being told this, I realize, wow, this is like what the church was designed to be. A bunch of battle buddies committed to each other. For instance, is there anybody in your life that really knows your business? That really knows you well enough? That would be the one that would catch you when you're veering off, when you're drifting away. Well, I'm a little bit scared to think about the honest answers here because I think too many of us have designed our lives to be so isolated. And maybe we share a little bit about a little bit, but there's a whole lot that's still secret. And yet we were designed to be a family, brothers and sisters who know each other, who care for one another, who watch out for one another. We were designed to succeed together, not alone, not in isolation. So stay connected. Friends, weekly gathering. This meeting is extremely important. I know it happens every week. I know sometimes it might feel a little routine, and we come and go, this meeting is extremely important. I know that it's slow and it's cumulative. Nevertheless, it's very important. Community group, gathering with individuals, small groups within the church, it is very important. You can come and go from this meeting and so much doesn't happen in these Sunday meetings. But you get sitting in somebody's living room with 8 to 15 people in that room and you get to praying together and sharing and interacting and discussing. What takes place in those hours is extremely important for our spiritual health. When we drift apart, we drift away. And people, we need to stay connected to one another if we're going to make it. If we're going to get up and say, Lord, your will, not mine. Now, if you're all about your will and you're not about God's will, then you don't need to be together. No assembly required. But if we want to do the Lord's will, Assembly is required regularly, often. Lastly, don't get entangled. 2 Timothy 2.4 talks about no soldier getting entangled in civilian affairs. It's a little bit scary to even ask the question to think through what occupies chunks of your time and energy between our gatherings. And if we were to make an honest assessment of what really absorbs so much of our time, and I know your phone will tell you, we'll give you a report on your screen time. That's a scary figure to look at, isn't it? Sometimes that's in and of itself is a wake-up call. I know that life is filled with a lot of responsibilities and a lot of opportunities. And life is filled with a lot of good things. And we live in Southern California, which means there's a lot, a lot of really good things and fun things to occupy our time and our energy. But folks, if we're going to stay awake, part of staying awake means that we don't allow good things to cause us to drift off asleep spiritually. And that these things get tempered and adjusted and watched and monitored in a sense of, wait a minute, how much, how many hours in my week am I given to 
anything that is going to have any eternal implication and significance versus how much of my time and energy is spent this week on something that when the week is over, it's gone, it's done. Nothing of it will last. That's why we gather. That's why we help. All right, wonderful. Worship team, come on up in closing. Do you understand and will you stand? Do you understand and will you stand? Do you understand what Jesus was agonizing over in the garden? Do you understand what caused him so much distress? It was my sin, your sin laid upon him. The fact that he had to bear that in himself, that's what caused him so much grief and so much agony. Knowing that, will you stand? First and foremost, it's only possible for you and I to stand because Jesus stood. He came up out of that prayer meeting, resolved in his heart to finish the journey to the cross. He spent time before the Lord doing business, resolving in his heart, I know what this is about. I know what's most important. I know what will be ultimately for God's glory. I know what will be ultimately for the salvation of the world. So I will go to the cross. He obtained his resolve from the Father, got up and did the Father's will. We can stand because he stood. But we won't stand if we're asleep. Let's stand. Father, wake us up where we need to be awakened. And in the very real ways, some of one, some that we've talked about, ways that we fall asleep, I, I'm asking that your spirit would position us in this story and see Jesus breaking away from his prayer time, agonizing with the Father to come back and tell us to wake up. I'm about to die for you. You need to stay awake. Lord, I ask that as a church, we would be an awake church. Wake us up where we're sleepy so that we can go forward with resolve to do your will entering a new season. Father, we want to see more people come to know you. We want you to work in and through us to reach this community in the San Gabriel Valley and draw souls into the kingdom. We want to see lives change. We want to see marriages healed. We want to see children and teenagers grow up with, with a passion for Jesus and a fervency in their heart to live for you and to serve you bring it about. Begin with us. Wake us up for your glory in Jesus' name.